The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Today we're going to be talking about a specific area of the United States, the San Francisco Bay Area. But the the reason I think that a lot of us will be interested in this is because a lot of coastal communities in the United States are beginning to look at what they need to do to adapt to rising sea levels as a result of global warming and climate change. And so, um, and not only rising sea levels, but also some of the storms that we're seeing. Just this week, we saw horrendous flooding in South Carolina. Uh, even though they didn't take Hurricane Joaquin straight on, uh, the rain and some of the infrastructure failure, um, some of their aging infrastructure contributed to the flooding that we saw this week. So we're going to be talking to two experts today about why the San Francisco Bay Area is vulnerable to some of the same situations and what some of the solutions could be. Our guests today, we have two. Uh, the first is Jeremy Lowe. He's a coastal geomorphologist. Morphologist, did I say that right, Jeremy? That's correct. All right. And he has 30 years of experience in tidal wetland restoration and sea level rise adaptation planning. And we also have John Bourgeois, who's the executive project manager at the California Coastal Conservancy. And both gentlemen are featured in a new mini documentary, which you can find online. Uh, the documentary is called The Water at Bay. But we're going to go into this um, in more detail. And I'm so pleased to have both of you gentlemen on Go Green Radio. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jill. It's, it's great to have you all on. Jeremy, I'd like to start with you. Um, talk to us about the current condition of flood control infrastructure in the San Francisco Bay. Well, yes, flood control district, uh, infrastructure does work. It does its job. It keeps the water out most of the time. Uh, control may be the wrong word. In, in all types of flooding, we can get bigger events, which could eventually overtop. So we call it risk management. Mm-hmm. And so for the, the risks that we're willing to take as a society, uh, the infrastructure we have does its job. Um, but those risks are going to change um, and with, with climate change and sea level rise, and we need to think about how to manage and design our flood infrastructure for the future. It also needs constant maintenance. It needs to, to maintain the, the standards that we want at the moment. And also, of course, behind the levees, behind the, uh, the sea walls. Our, our cities are developing and changing, and so there's different types of uh, uh, infrastructure and, and, de- and development that we need to protect. So we need to keep reinvesting into the uh, flood infrastructure, and that's really been the problem, is that we haven't had a good source of uh, funding to maintain and also to replace uh, this infrastructure. It's, it's aging, it's getting old, it's facing new challenges, 
uh, is going to face a challenge this winter with the El Nino and the higher water levels we're expecting in the bay and the increased wave activity and so on. So there's, there's a lot of challenges in the short term and in the longer term. Uh, it does its job at the moment. We need to start planning and thinking ahead and how to, how to make a better flood infrastructure for the future. And, you know, that isn't a completely foreign mindset. It's just been several decades since this was the case. In California, this used to be a very bipartisan issue. Um, Our current governor's father, Pat Brown, Democrat, and then his uh, follow-on, Governor Reagan. At that time, California was spending 10 to 12 percent of the general fund on infrastructure. And now we are spending about 1% of our general fund on infrastructure. And so, you know, our population, of course, has grown tremendously in those few decades. And, um, and so the maintenance, the repair, and like you said, replacement in some cases of this infrastructure um, is something that will require a public commitment of those funds. And um, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. John, I'd like to bring you in here. California has been suffering from a prolonged drought. And I think it's really hard for everyday Californians to think about floodwaters running down their streets when we've been, you know, so, so dry. But talk to us about how the drought might affect flooding in the Bay Area if we get this big El Nino storm that's supposedly coming our way. You're absolutely right, Jill. With with such a prolonged historic drought, everyone I know hoping and praying for rain, uh, it's really hard for people to wrap their head around the fact that, that we're at risk for flooding. Um, California's, you know, historically known for periodic droughts and also for our, our beautiful weather here in the Bay Area, but we, we do get some very severe storms. Um, the most, uh, the biggest one in recorded history was in about 1862. We had a massive storm event that um, impacted about 25% of the state's economy, and the state actually went bankrupt from that storm. That was about a 200-year event, and we're about 150 years into that cycle. So, um, you know, we're, we're due for some big storms here. And so the fact that we've been in this drought, a lot of our, um, a lot of our spending, our infrastructure spending that you were just mentioning, has been focused to drought alleviation. And so that actually diverted... Uh, infrastructure funds away from flood protection projects toward toward drought resiliency, which is an important issue. But maybe we're not as prepared for a big storm as um, as we think we would be. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is just fluvial. This is just riverine. You know, from storm events. Uh, a bigger and bigger issue that we're going to face is really not even related to uh, to rainfall, and that's tidal flooding with with sea level rise. San Francisco Bay open to the ocean. We're subject to tides, and we've got a lot of infrastructure, low-lying areas right along the bay. So we're going to be more and more uh, worried about tidal flooding as, as the years go on. Well, and, and on that point, Jeremy, I know you've been involved with this in several communities. John, you have as well. But Jeremy, you know, there are coastal communities around the world who are looking at the impact that rising sea levels will have on their communities. And I've seen a lot of maps of the United States and what it could look like decade over decade as the sea level, you know, begins to rise. And um, talk to us about how rising sea levels will impact the San Francisco Bay in particular, what areas and what, uh, you know, parts of real estate will be impacted? Well, if you look at the uh, map of the bay, 
um, you'll see that the, the, the cities, uh, particularly in the, around the central and the south bay, they cluster all very close to the shoreline. And what we've done in the past is we built upon the historic wetlands and the marshes that were surrounding the bay because it's lo- it's, it was wide, flat areas, easily accessible. It was perfect for building uh, ports, perfect for building um, cities and infrastructure and so on. So, and that's a common pattern around the world, that estuaries and low-lying coastal areas have been heavily populated. And so that's served us very well over the last uh, century and a half. But those very areas that are, 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 um, are close to the, the bay are also those very areas which are vulnerable to sea level rise. And what's keeping the water out at the moment is uh, our levees. And in the future, we're going to rely more and more on those levees to keep the, those waters out. So our vulnerability is basically the, the flat, low-lying areas adjacent to the bay, often called the baylands. Uh, and in those, those, those places, we not only have a, a low-lying areas with rising sea levels, but also as we've, as we've taken away tidal action, those areas have tended to subside as well. So we have a problem with the land going down, the water going up, and the protection provided by levees, which we're having to... Uh, maintain at increasing cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's about 200 square miles of the bay at risk um, uh, behind those levees. They're not all going to fail simultaneously. They're all, all at risk at the, same, at the same time. But increasingly, all those areas will become vulnerable to sea level rise. Talk to us about some of the things that are included in that. I mean, like, there are some pretty big businesses and uh, community services that are involved in that, real estate. Kind of give us a little bit of a flavor for who and what could be, uh, you know, at at risk there. Well, we have neighborhoods. We have cities. We have uh, places like Foster City and uh, past the Redwood City. You're going down through... Uh, Mountain View and Hayward, all those areas, low-lying areas adjacent to, to the bay. And then we've also built a lot of infrastructure in there, our transportation network, Highway 101, um, 880, 80, 37, all those uh, ones which ring the, uh, ring the bay, they are uh, all in low-lying areas, taking advantage of those large flat expanses of, of land. We build infrastructure in those areas. We have power stations. We have our port facilities. We have our airports. Um, mm-hmm. And we have our wastewater systems. Uh, right. All of these have to be located in these, in these large areas. They, have to be, they, they provide us valuable services to people not only in adjacent low-lying areas, but also higher up on the hill in the, uh, and, and living, living outside of the immediate sea level rise zone. So it impacts on the, our area is very vulnerable uh, to disruption of our services if, if, these, if these vital uh, infrastructure gets flooded. Well, and here's some big name companies whose headquarters are in that red zone, Facebook. So immediately, I have everyone listening, all of our listeners, whether you're in the Bay Area or not. Yes, Facebook. And some of these other huge Silicon Valley companies, some of their headquarters are currently located in areas that could be vulnerable. So there's a lot of economic risk as well. John, in the mini documentary that you all made, the um, it was really interesting to me, and, and I'd like for you to give us some more information about this gray and green infrastructure. Talk to us about some of the natural barriers that the Bay Area lacks that could afford us some protection against sea level rise and flooding. 
Sure. When, when we talk about gray infrastructure versus green infrastructure, those are just code words. And, and gray, you know, the color of, of concrete, um, that's when, when we say green infrastructure, we're talking about our more traditional engineering solutions to flood protection. Mm-hmm. Um, placing rocks to prevent shoreline erosion, uh, using a flood wall or, or kind of your more traditional levees, um, things, that, things that we've been doing for quite a while now. Uh, those are considered your gray infrastructure. When we talk about green infrastructure, we're talking about more nature-based solutions, trying to incorporate, um, one, some habitat value in those flood protections, but also using nature itself to help buffer from the floods. And uh, in San Francisco Bay in particular, uh, we have lots of opportunity for uh, marsh or wetland restoration. And wetlands do a very good job of, 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 you know, damping down tidal energy, lowering the wave energy, and so that when you, when you combine the two, and this isn't feasible everywhere in San Francisco Bay. There are areas where we absolutely are going to need to stick with kind of our gray, more traditional engineering solutions for flood protection when we talk about very urbanized shorelines. Um, but we do have the luxury of having large areas that are already in public ownership that are, that are suitable for wetland restoration. Mm-hmm. And when you pair the green aspect with the gray uh, infrastructure, the two together can work uh, in concert to provide greater flood protection and greater resiliency uh, to some of these storm events. Well, and when we come back, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, I'd like to touch on how, you know, the natural barriers compare in terms of cost and performance with some of the man-made barriers and, and, and give us some idea of what the cost would be to put in some of these wetland restoration projects and what have you. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go away, folks. We've got much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking about how the San Francisco Bay Area has some particular vulnerabilities, both to flooding and to sea level rise. And we're talking with Jeremy Lowe and John Bourgeois, who are working on a restoration project um, that's multifaceted uh, to help protect the Bay Area and its economy from uh, catastrophic damage that could be caused by, you know, these water events, um, whether they be weather, whether it's sea level rise. And John, before the break, we were talking with you about some of these natural barriers like wetland restoration projects versus man-made barriers. And I'd like for you just to give us kind of an idea of how those two types of infrastructure compare in terms of cost and performance. I, I remember that you did say it's good to have a combination of the two, but help us understand a little bit of the comparison of the two. Sure. The, um, the use of wetlands incorporated into flood protection design is a very, very cost-effective method. Um, for those of you that may not be familiar with how marshes function, um, they can actually grow and keep pace with sea level rise. So we, we're fortunate in San Francisco Bay right now, we have a very large sediment supply. It's a very sediment-rich bay. And so as sea level is rising, these marshes can actually accrete sediment and keep pace with sea level rise. So you have kind of a built-in accommodation for that sea level rise. So they're, they're very effective uh, for that reason. And it's a very cost-effective uh, means of doing so. Um, the Bay Institute produced a report. Actually, Jeremy was the lead author on this report a couple years ago where they looked at the cost, the long-term cost of having just uh, kind of your more traditional levee versus a levee with a wetland in front of it. And over the life of the levee, and that includes, in the first segment we alluded to this, this need for ongoing maintenance of these flood control structures, um, over the life, the 50-year life of that um, of that infrastructure, if you have a wetland in front of it, it cuts the overhaul cost in half. So yeah. it's a very significant cost savings when you use these use these two gray and green infrastructure strategies in concert. Interesting. And why is that? What does the wetland, you know, piece of that combination do to protect the levee? Well, it really damps down any sort of um, wave run-up. So they can absorb that energy of these big waves coming in to hit your levee. So you don't mm-hmm. get as much erosion on the levee face, uh, meaning your, your maintenance costs are dramatically reduced. But also your levee actually doesn't have to be quite as high. So you don't have to build it to the same height as if you didn't have that buffer in front of it. So it, it takes away, it absorbs a lot of the energy of that storm surge before it gets to the levee. Interesting. Interesting. Now, Jeremy, 
you know, a lot of us who live in the Bay Area know that even during the worst part of the economic recession um, that started in 2008, the Bay Area fared pretty well, relatively speaking, to the rest of the country. But talk to us about how the Bay Area economy could be impacted by severe flooding and sea level rise. I mean, we all know about the human cost and, you know, the homes being decimated and what have you, but what about the economy? What are our risks there? Well, our risks are, I think, related to the interconnectivity that we have in business today, that part, every, all parts of the, um, of the economy are, are connected either physically by goods and people moving between them and by, uh, or electronically over the Internet, um, financially they're connected. So impacting one part of it or interrupting, particularly interrupting the business of one part of that connectivity has a knock-on effect not just in the Bay Area, but outside the Bay Area. The Bay Area is a, is a hub for economic development, which other parts of the region and other parts of the state and the nation depend upon. And so we can have a knock-on effect if we interrupt those areas. And a good example of this interruption, uh, we don't have to permanently put things underwater by sea level rise, by having increasing amounts of flooding and, 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 not, and interrupting business for a few days, you can have a knock-on effect. And an example of that is, is Sandy um, on the East Coast, where we saw a similar uh, interconnected modern uh, economy uh, being interrupted by, a, by an event. And their uh, transportation, the airports were flooded, people couldn't move around. Um, there was infrastructure to the power supplies um, so that the businesses couldn't get working. Even if they had power, people couldn't get to work because the highways were flooded. Um, then it, and it's, we have our own examples here um, when uh, in 2005 we had a number of uh, uh, cities were flooded, including Martinez, and the, the water was only out for a period of time, uh, for a few days, but there were several weeks of cleaning up afterwards just to get rid of the mud. We have a muddy bay. So it's a, as much as flood-proofing, we should be mud-proofing, our, 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 think about mud-proofing our cities. We, th- we should also think about the, the replacement costs, the, a lot of the wiring, a lot of the uh, furniture, a lot of the, um, the, the, the different parts of the, uh, the buildings had to be replaced once they were wet. They couldn't be reused. So simply flooding and then assuming you're going to start work again the next day is not really a viable option. There's a lot of cleanup. And what's going to happen with sea level rise is, uh, is that those, the frequency of which we're going to get those types of flooding, those interruptions to business, is going to increase. So we're going to get it more often. We're going to probably get it, the depth of water is going to be, when we do flood, it's going to increase and the duration is going to increase. So gradually, what was a, uh, an occasional interruption once every 10 years, and you wrote to your grandkids and you told them this is our, and that's cleaning up and things like that, will become once a, once a year and then becomes once a month. And mm-hmm. so it would be very much more difficult to do um, business. And so we're going to have to adapt to those different risks. We're either going to have to reduce the risk by building, um, by, by building bigger levees, or we're going to have to move to have the operations of our business or we're going to have to start thinking about moving and in there's going to be a combination of those we're not going to do everything all at the same time but we're going to evolve to uh, our businesses and the way that we live our lives to accommodate these different changes in the in the flooding we're going to expect to see in the bay Mm-hmm. And Jeremy, I want to also talk to you about something that was brought up in the documentary. You know, it showed that a lot of infrastructure like 
you know, electricity transmission lines and wastewater treatment plants are actually built below sea level in the area. And I'm wondering, talk to us about the ramifications of flooding or sea level rise for vital services like that. Because there was a point in the documentary where you said, you know, if there's flooding, you won't be able to flush the toilet, even if you live uphill. Explain that to us. Okay, so there's a good reason why those, those, those pieces of infrastructure are built at the, at, uh, close to the bay. Um, for the example, for the wastewater, um, water flows downhill. And so if you're collecting all that, uh, that, that, uh, the, 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 the water to be treated, then you're going you're gonna, to you're put it at the bottom of the hill, and the bottom of the hill is at the bay. So that's, that's the reason why we locate them. They require space. Um, and in the, in, the ni- in the 1970s, we had the Clean Water Act, and part of the, um, the way to meet that was to centralize those systems uh, into having a big uh, wastewater treatment facility. So we have a number of those around the bay. They do a great job. They, 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 they've certainly improved the, the, the water quality in the bay, but they weren't designed for sea level rise. And so they, are li- they, they, they lie in, in an areas close to the bay, low down. They also were constructed with um, a large amount of the, the, the facility is actually below ground. They, that helps them in passing water through them and makes them more efficient. But it doesn't require much uh, water actually on the surface, uh, just a few inches to go down into those galleries and to start flooding them. So they are particularly vulnerable. And the, um, uh, the, the Rockaway water facility, uh, treatment facility in, in New York, in the Sandy, um, is a, is a case, uh, during the Sandy hurricane, was, a, was, a, was a, a particular case of an exact example of what happened when the, that flooding occurred, because they'd been storing uh, not only the, they don't know be using these ga- underground galleries for, um, the, for the water treatment, for, but they'd also been storing their maintenance records, they'd been storing all their uh, spare, spare parts, they'd been, they'd been using those uh, um, places for, for, for doing a lot of their work. And, we've, and it's the same as, it, as in, uh, around the Bay Area. So we have vulnerable facilities um, which can easily be, be flooded. The impact it has on the Bay is interesting because in Sandy what happened was uh, it's a large flat area and they, when the wastewater treatment went down, most of the, at the same time, most of the area was evacuated. So there weren't many people there. So the actual impact on the system wasn't so great. They, as they got the water treatment facilities working again and the power stations working again, people came back. In the Bay, it's different. We have flat areas, but we also have a lot of hill areas. We have a mm-hmm. lot of population living outside of the sea level rise areas. And so if we do have a big catastrophe, maybe a, a, you know, a flooding of one of these, these systems, there's going to be a lot of people still needing to use those facilities and to still require power, but it won't be there. Mm-hmm. And so our knock-on effect is going to go wider. And I don't know. I've been on a cruise. I haven't been on a cruise ship, but I've seen pictures of it when the, mm. you know, the sanitary conditions start getting worse after two or three days. And imagine several weeks of that in the Bay Area. These mm. are significant issues that we need to deal with. And it shows the vulnerability of some of these connected systems. People are aware of this. And so when we're thinking about how to redesign it, we should be thinking about how to accommodate those types of uh, vulnerabilities. Well, and it's interesting because I just read yesterday um, in the Associated Press, you know, talk about what's happening in South Carolina. And though they've got all this flooding, they're concerned about not having enough drinking water. And when you read about, you know, why that 
is the case, the canals that were built to you know, bring water to the water treatment centers and hence uh, the systems, the infrastructure, the pipes and what have you that would take fresh drinking water to residents. Um, the infrastructure uh, was so old and it, it was just lagging in repairs. I think that there was public policy that allowed the local government to raid the funds to pay for firefighters and police officers versus, you know, repairs and upgrades to the water infrastructure. And now, uh, though the streets are flooded, there's concern about enough drinking water. And it's really something that I think, um, you know, it's not sexy to talk about this during political campaigns, but public policy makers are really going to have to address um, diverting public funds to um, our infrastructure. And I'm not sure how, you know, you all are looking at, you know, making that happen here in the Bay Area, but it's something that I'd like to discuss in the next segment. We're going to be taking a commercial break in just a moment, but but how is it that we convince um you know, public policymakers at the local, state, and federal level to re-look at and reinvest in infrastructure when, as we all know, when you're talking about campaigns, whether they're at the presidential or mayoral level, um, everybody wants to hear about new, innovative programs and ways to, to use public funding, um, and, and nobody's excited about creating, uh, you know, a repair system or a program to um, upgrade our infrastructure. So we'll talk about that in the next segment. So folks, don't go away. We've got a lot more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, our guests today are Jeremy Lowe and John Bourgeois, and they're working on a San Francisco Bay Area restoration project that would help to prevent some of the um, the risks to flooding and sea level rise in the Bay Area. But I think that it's kind of a microcosmic look at what's happening in coastal communities across the U.S. And that's why I find it so interesting because some of the same challenges that uh, organizations and public policymakers are facing in addressing these issues in the San Francisco Bay Area are not unlike what's happening in coastal communities all over the U.S., But let's get back specifically to the Bay Area. John, there are estimates that water incursion in the Bay Area could cause upwards of $10.5 billion worth of damage. Talk to us about what's included in those estimates and give us some more specifics about the extent of the damage that's behind a number that big. Sure. Um, That that was a recent study, and uh, my agency, the California State Coastal Conservancy, was involved, but it it was actually spearheaded by the Bay Area Council. And that's a business-sponsored public policy advocacy group. So uh, when we start talking about this awareness, it's not just the environmentalists or the flood control folks that are, that are aware of this and starting to try and push for some of these infrastructure changes. It's also the business community, which I think is a really positive step um, here in the San Francisco Bay. But what they did was they, they modeled a storm, um, and this is much smaller than the, the one I talked about earlier in 1862. This would a much smaller storm, um, you know, significant rainfall for a, about a four to seven day period at a high tide, you know, something that very feasibly could happen. And um, just to give you some idea, there's over 350,000 people in San Francisco Bay that live in the 100-year floodplain, and there's over $46 billion of infrastructure in that same zone. So there's a lot at risk. And the storm they modeled came up with a a damage assessment of, of $10.5 billion. The majority of that is from the structures and its contents. So about $5.9 billion of damage to structures, another $4 billion for its contents. But there were hundreds of millions of dollars of impacts associated with some of the exact same things that Jeremy was talking about. Loss of electricity, loss of air transportation, loss of ground transportation. You know, all too often when I talk to people and they look at, they look at flood maps, they just they look at it and say, oh, yep, my house or my business is dry, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. That's really not the case. There are all these other implications of, of an event of this magnitude that, that really affect and have a, a recurring effect on, on business and, and people's lives. And that number, it, it did not take into account any future sea level rise. This is a storm that could happen now. And it also did not calculate any potential loss of life, which obviously would be um, horrible as well. Mm-hmm. But when we start talking about infrastructure, one of the things that uh, so several of us have been trying to, to get across is is the use of wetland restoration and being viewing that as an infrastructure project. A lot of times, habitat restoration projects are seen as as kind of a luxury. It's something you do when you have 
extra resources and you want to do something nice for the, the, the biodiversity and the critters that live in the marsh. But really, these have services to flood protection that should be viewed as, as infrastructure. So trying to couple, couple the wetland restoration with your more traditional uh, engineering solutions is, is a real opportunity here in San Francisco Bay that we're trying to push forward. Sounds like a branding issue. I can imagine some PR firms who could have a field day with this and, and come up with, you know, besides, you know, wetland registration, maybe they, they could come up with a new term that would make it uh, just human-centric enough for people to care enough to invest in it. I know that that sounds crass, but sometimes that is the way to get through to people when they realize the uh, the what's-in-it-for-me aspect of, well, you're of wetlands right. restoration. Was, sorry, you're absolutely right. And that was part of the reason that you, you mentioned the, the little documentary that, that Jeremy and I participated in, that was one of the, the purposes of that, was to try and uh, bring these issues into awareness for a larger uh, population. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's short. I mean, it's perfect, you know, YouTube length. It's very easy to, to digest. So I would highly recommend it. And we'll give the, the website address in just a moment. But Jeremy, by comparison, this $10.5 billion in estimated damage, um, what would it cost to put preventative measures in to protect the Bay Area from flooding and sea level rise? And then the caveat to that is where would that funding come from? So give us some insight onto that. Well, um, flood, infra- uh, flood infrastructure is not cheap, um, as you pointed out. You know, it's about twelve million. Can be about twelve million dollars uh, a mile uh, for its whole life cost, and we have many miles um, in, the, in the in the bay to protect. Um, and we, do, but we are, we're not we're not starting from scratch, and we we are we we have a lot of um, infrastructure in place already, and things to build on and maintain. Um, but in other places, we need to start thinking about how we can better manage it, given the new um, um, the new challenges that, that, that sea level rise and climate change bring about. We do have a we don't really have a, a very effective funding mechanism uh, for, for flood infrastructure at the moment. The effects of Proposition 13 and, and 218 they 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 tended to. Um, uh, channel uh, prevent the the, the flood uh, uh, districts from uh, generating sufficient money to do uh, to do the upgrades that pe- people have been trying to put in place to provide better protection. So thinking ahead, we may have to do uh, a, a different switch on how we manage the shoreline. Thinking about it more holistically, thinking about all the different protections it provides, all the different services it provides. We talk a lot about flood risk management. We also get a lot of value out of the wetlands and out of the shore in other ways, and through water quality, uh, through the ecological benefits we get for the supporting wildlife and species, um, and in carbon sequestration as well, in the longer term, mitigating for some of the effects of climate change. So we should be starting to think about how we manage this shoreline, not just for flood protection, but how we can manage it for other aspects, which we already use, but we don't necessarily value. And so I think we need to start thinking about all the different co-benefits that we get because by thinking about that, we then bring different funding sources potentially to the, um, to the table and mm-hmm. thinking about how um, maybe the wastewater people who would maybe benefit from improved water quality through the wetlands and who are vulnerable, how they could, they could benefit from, be part of the, um, uh, the, the, the equation for, for funding. 
thinking about how um, the highways, which are vulnerable, how they could incorporate their capital improvement plans into management of the shoreline to provide provide another form of revenue source. Mm -hmm. Thinking about how the restorations could do that as well. So there's a number of people there. That means we've got to sort of reimagine the shoreline to think about, you know, how how our future needs could be accommodated in the shoreline, not just replacing like for like. And then, of course, things like the, the drought and, and climate change and so on, they, these are drivers. These are times. We haven't had a time-dependent uh, system before. We've, you know, we've chosen, oh, well, let's do it in 10 years' time or 20 years' time. We've done things at our leisure because we think everything's been, it's going to be the same into the future. But, of course, mm-hmm. things are going to change. And so there is a, an urgency into doing this. So I think that I, I, I think, think some of the joined up thinking, some of the joined up projects are really going to be key to get, helping us fund what at the moment seem to be very large changes and very expensive mm-hmm. changes that we, we think we can make. But I don't, want, I don't think we should be having a, you know, a project sign which says, here is our sea level rise project. I think what we should be having is like, here is our project which gives us a better transportation system, improves our water quality and wastewater. Oh, and by the way, it's not, so, it's, not, it's not vulnerable to sea level rise. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the type of integration I think we need rather than you know, talking specifically, oh, what's the cost for sea level rise? It's the cost for a, 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 an infrastructure that's going to keep us going through the next century and beyond and keeping the economic system, keeping our houses safe and so on, but keeping our businesses working, addressing many drivers, many issues, not just sea level rise. Well, let me ask you this. And either, oh, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah, can I can I add something to that? Just a little, sure. A little specificity. Um, as one kind of concrete example. In in 2008, the state legislature created something called the San Francisco Bay Restoration Authority, um, and its charter is to is to identify, raise, and allocate funds for large multi-benefit flood protection restoration. Just kind of that that exact mixing of gray and green infrastructure I was talking about. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it's an entity that exists, but it's not funded. And so they're considering putting um, a measure on the ballot uh, to, to raise money locally. So that would be a really great source of local funds that can be then used to leverage other state and federal monies. Um, but that's just kind of an example of, of a sort of multi-benefit project, multidisciplinary uh, approach that, that Jeremy was mentioning. Well, and what I'm hearing, though, in terms of multidisciplinary is multi-government agencies. Since you have businesses involved, is there any opportunity for public-private partnerships to fund some of this? I mean, is there any interest on the part of Bay Area businesses to chip in? Well, there, is, I, there is interest. And, um, you know, the Bay Area Council has been involved. Uh, the Silicon Valley Leadership Group has been involved. And we've been in conversations with specific local uh, businesses. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard sell. Um, mm-hmm. You know, flood protection has typically been the, the realm of, of the government. And that's still primarily viewed that way. But I think mm-hmm. we're definitely making progress. We've got a very powerful business lobby here in the Bay Area, and uh, the, this issue is definitely um, getting more and more on their radar screen. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to be too much of a buzzkill here, but there are some Silicon Valley businesses who are on the short list of companies whose tax issues, um, you know, 
may be helpful if they were to bring some of their assets back to the U.S. Um, to pay you know, more taxes. Um, and that's something that I know that Silicon Valley isn't the only area of the country where this is happening, where, you know, we've got American-based corporations with assets that are overseas such that, you know, they aren't paying as much in taxes as they might otherwise be. Um, so maybe that's something that, you know, and I'm not sure that that you all are comfortable bringing that up, but maybe some of the elected officials could bring that before, you know, some of the Bay Area businesses who might be able to help even if it's through, you know, taxes. I know that, you know, that's a touchy subject and and it's difficult to do this kind of um, funding um, when a lot of people in the Bay Area feel like they're pretty well taxed uh, for quite a bit as it is, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how this might be done and some of the templates around the country and around the world that might serve to, uh, to help us get there. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this commercial break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tovanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We've been talking today um, with Jeremy Lowe and John Bourgeois about the Bay Area project to make the Bay Area more flood resilient and um, to protect against sea level rise. John, historically, when we talk about things like wetlands restoration projects, these have been the work of environmental groups and nonprofit organizations, you know, um, 
Sierra Club and, uh, you know, folks like that. Um, but in this particular instance, who's involved in the San Francisco Bay Area project? Does it extend beyond the usual environmental protection groups? Yeah, the um, the history of wetland conservation and restoration in San Francisco Bay is, is quite interesting. And and those uh, environmental groups and nonprofit organizations were really instrumental in, in changing people's awareness of the value of wetlands in San Francisco Bay. And early on, it was really about uh, conservation, protecting what, what little wetlands we had left. Um, the San Francisco Bay Delta is you know, it's the largest estuary on the West Coast. And at one point, you know, we lost over 90% of our tidal wetlands. So for a long time, the battle was just protecting what, what little we had left. And now things have changed so much that, you know, collectively, all the work going on around the Bay, it's just one of the largest restoration programs in the country. And it is really multidisciplinary. It's federal agency, state agency, local agencies, private uh, nonprofit organizations, research institutes. Um, it, it really is quite a consortium. And uh, we're very proud of the, of the model we have and, and the results that we're generating on this, on this really, really large-scale restoration in the day. It's really exciting. And hey, maybe one of these days, just as much as we see AT&T Park for uh, sports venues, maybe we'll see the Google Wetlands. You never know. Maybe you can get some corporate sponsors out there. But I want to talk to you about, um, you know, some of the greatest challenges to getting this work done in a timely manner. I mean, you can't separate something of this magnitude from politics, from, uh, you know, public opinion. Talk to us, John. What do you think the greatest challenges? Because I know for what, what you're going to say for the San Francisco Bay Area is going to be the same for other coastal communities across the U.S. who are trying to get some of this infrastructure upgrade in place. What's going to be the, the difficulty that you have to overcome? The, the biggest challenge is funding, quite frankly. I mean, it, it comes down to money. We, we've, we've done a lot of work here. We know we can be successful in some of these restoration projects. But it really comes down to, to getting dedicated funds that we can consistently count on. Right now, it's very, it's very hit or miss, and we're always scrambling. Um, the second one, what I would think is the second biggest obstacle, is very interesting because, and that's our policies and our regulations, um, and, and a lot of work has been done over the past 50 years, like I said, to protect what little bit of the bay we have left, um, and so all of our policies have been focused on that without really having an eye toward dramatic changes like sea level rise. And so when we start to implement strategies that are focused on resiliency to sea level rise, they may run counter to some existing policies. So that's a real struggle we're going through right now in the Bay is how do we adapt our policy and regulatory framework to account for um, basically a shifting baseline? Um, and, and that's also going to be a real challenge because some of the things we're proposing, um, are, are not legal. <laughs> you know, we want to, wow. we want to, yeah, we want to do some things that are, that are pretty, um, forward thinking and, and think about the shoreline in 50 years, a hundred years and beyond. Um, and, and our policy framework just isn't quite set up for that. You know, I can't help wondering if the League of California Cities, you know, if they might be able to be helpful because a lot of, uh, you know, they do have a focus. There's a kind of a subgroup of the League of California Cities that's working on climate change adaptation issues. And I don't know if that's something that you all, a group that you all have tapped into, uh, have they been helpful at all? 
it's it's not someone we've tapped into yet, but that's a really good idea. And I'll look All into right. that. Well, after the show, we'll we'll converse. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like maybe that's a good place to, to get some backing. Jeremy, you know, I'm sure that some of our listeners, some of them live in the Bay Area, most of them don't. Um, but for those who don't live in the Bay Area, I mean, this is something that, again, coastal communities across the U.S. are going to be dealing with. But here in the Bay Area, how could listeners get involved in this project? What are some of the things they could do? Well, there's a, there's a plethora of opportunities to get involved in, the, in this project, uh, both legal and illegal versions of it. Um, <laughs> that, uh, so, if you, I mean, to learn, learning about the Bay is, is really important. It's a, you know, we live right next to it, but it's not very well known to a lot of us. Um, for example, bay.org, um, go to their website and you'll see the Aquarium of the Bay, the Sea Lion Center, Ecocentra at Heron's Head Park, and the Bay Model, they're all great educational opportunities that you can have in the Bay. You can go and experience it. You can go with uh, Marin Audubon uh, and, and go on tr- trips around the marshes, learn from those sense about what's happening, experience it, go on the Bay Trail, get to, get to understand how the marshes are really important. You can be part of monitoring the Bay in uh, California King Tides. These are the highest tides we get, and they usually appear on public holidays around Christmas time. There's, there's a whole website. These are really high tides which are indicating where sea level, what sea level rise might look like in about 20, 30 years' time. So they're really great indications. People take photographs of these and we compare what's there now with what the future could be. Go to california.kingtides.net and you'll see those, be part of that uh, community effort to, to document these changes. You can actually get your hands dirty in restorations. Golden Gate Audubon Society and others, they run regular um, uh, trips with, with skilled experts helping you, teaching you how to be part of the conservation effort and, and restoration effort on these marshes. So there's, there's opportunities there. You can also be part of some of what the legal activities, you know, what, what the future shoreline could be like. Save the Bay are part of the effort to um, uh, build a demonstration project down on the Hayward shoreline. A part of the, a new type of shoreline which incorporates the historic native species but also thinks about how to accommodate sea level rise. And they're doing a big planting in December. Uh, you can go down there. You can be, as a member of the public, you'll be taught how to, how to help. And we're planting 70,000 uh, plants on, on, that, on, that, on, the, on the next, on the, uh, in, in October and November, um, putting those plants out, helping it grow, helping construct what may be part of the future shoreline. And that's, that's, a, that's part of the community effort, but then the Coastal Conservancy are involved, BCDC are involved, uh, the wastewater community is involved in industry. So it's a, that to me is part of the joined up thinking. And it's not, and as, as John pointed out, it's, it's you know, in the future, it's, it's not going to be, it's not, you know, in necessarily individual agencies' opportunities. It's all, it's all our responsibilities to, be, to help improve this bay, not just for sea level rise, but for all the other issues that we have in it. Absolutely. Well said. You know, in the few moments that we have left in the show, I just do want to mention that there is this amazing and and pithy, you know, everybody likes a pithy video, but if you go to ourbayonthebrink.org, you can find the the mini documentary that we were talking about. And it really is, it's about seven minutes. Take a look. It's really interesting. You'll see John and Jeremy featured there. And then on that same uh, web page, there's just a number of ways to get involved. You can even 
tweet out some information, uh, post some information on your Facebook page to make people aware of it. Jeremy and John, it was great having you on Go Green Radio, and I'm really excited that we got a chance to share your work with our listeners. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio, and actually we'll be talking with one of the nation's foremost experts in disaster preparedness for businesses. So if you run a business, no matter where it is, uh, small, large, medium, any size, uh, Chloe is going to be coming on. She's with DRI to talk to us about how businesses can make themselves more prepared for severe weather instances um, and other uh, global warming, climate change related changes that we're going to face in the future. So until then, everybody have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.